Hello, hello, and welcome back to Glycan Hub, the podcast in which we explore health, disease, and longevity through the lens of glycobiology. My name is Rina, and I am your host. Is your diet tricking your immune system? Today, we will be talking about xenoautoantigens. Now, you might already know that antigens are molecules or substances that our antibodies can recognize. Very often, they are foreign, which allows our immune system to defend the body. But going back to the term xenoauto, xeno meaning foreign and auto meaning self, so how can something be both foreign and originate in our body at the same time? You might be surprised that the answer to this paradoxical question lies in the consumption of red meat. However, this discussion on xenoautoantigens will take us far beyond diet, from colorectal cancer, innovative immunotherapies, all the way to animal-derived heart valves. My guest today is the principal investigator in the Department of Cell Research and Immunology at Tel Aviv University. Her research combines glycobiology, immunology, bio-nanotechnology, cancer research, and xenotransplantation. A warm welcome to Vered Padler Karavani. Hello and welcome to our podcast. Welcome. Thank you. So before we get into our discussion, I want to know how you first got involved into glycobiology research and how come you decided to stay in this field? So actually, when I graduated my PhD in Tel Aviv University, I was thinking what would be my next thing. And at the same time, there was a big publication in Science uh, with with a cover talking about glycosciences And I was truly amazed. I didn't know anything about it. I started reading. And then I started reading more. And I found that in San Diego, there was a big hub for glycobiology. One of the key players there was Ajit Varki. And I went to interview in his lab. And I really, really liked it. So I decided uh, that this would be my next big thing. And at the same time, I also knew that in Israel, there were not many glycobiologists. uh, And this field would benefit from having that expertise brought back to Israel. So that was the key. And how is the situation right now with um, glycobiology research in Israel, um, besides your lab, of course? There are a few labs, but we still miss a national effort uh, to leverage the glycobiology as we see in other countries, like in the United States, in England, uh, or, you know, in other countries where you have like national resources and facilities. We don't have it here. But people that try to uh, or stumble upon glycobiology know to contact me and then I can deliver the message either or to refer them to other people in the field. Uh, and yeah, so it's, it's great to be uh, one of the leaders in Israel with that. Amazing. Um, we have a pretty interesting discussion today. Uh, it's a very interesting topic. So I thought a good place to start is by defining some of the key terminology. So could you define what we mean by xenoautoantigens and xenocellitis? So in fact, I, uh, I invented this term <laughs> when I was in Ajit Varki's lab. We investigated uh, the sialic acids uh, called U5GC, where Ajit at the time wanted to uh, investigate the differences between uh, men and chimps. And one of the key things that he found is that while chimpanzees and other mammals later on discovered uh, can synthesize this non-human 
sialic acids, humans miss the or are genetically deficient in the gene that is synthesizing new 5GC. So, and besides that genetic difference, there were a lot of implications. And one of the big things that even only recently we could really prove is that when we consume a mammalian-derived foods, we get new 5GC into our bodies, and that affects our immune system. We find new 5GC, although we cannot synthesize it in our body, we can still find new 5GC accumulating mostly on cancer tissues. And the only uh, source for that would be from the diet. Uh, but our cells are self, and the new 5GC is presented on self-glycans, but it's actually a non-self, a moiety. So the term xeno-auto means that xeno is different from a different organism. Auto means self. So it's, it's presentation of a non-self sugar in the context of self-glycans. And that's why we get auto antigens that can be recognized by xeno-auto antibodies that bind to these uh, non-human sugar. Sounds like a very confusing situation for our immune system. Very. <laughs> and uh, in fact, there have been a lot of studies, uh, especially in mice, but then later on in my lab, we did a lot of work in humans actually to show that the condition, uh, this uh, ongoing war between our immune system and our cells. Um, so the cells take up new 5GC as a Trojan horse and present it in the context of non-self. Our antibodies try to recognize some things that is different, pathogens or invaders. So new 5GC in that respect is an invader. And therefore, when we develop antibodies, uh, these antibodies try to bind and attack tissues that express new 5GC. Uh, and uh, that, that's where uh, we discovered, or Ajit actually, in Ajit Varki's lab, uh, actually took the lead in that uh, and defined the term xenocyalitis. That's an inflammation against this xenoglycan uh, and that is presented in the context of self. So our bodies try to uh, attack this invader, new 5GC. And uh, it, it results in a puzzling situation. I'm curious, which human tissues are most affected uh, by accumulation of new 5GC? And how does that correlate with the diseases which are associated with red meat consumption? It appears to uh, accumulate in cells that divide rapidly. So, uh, of course, the common cells would be cancer, that they lost uh, the control over division. Uh, and we also know that in cancer... Uh, there is overexpression of the cyanic acid transporter, CYAT, that then incorporates new 5GC even faster. Although cells can also take up the cyanic acid by micropenocytosis, basically they drink the media where uh, they can take up the glycans or glycoproteins or glycolipids. And um, yeah, so cancer cells mostly, but the other cell types would be endothelial cells. Uh, or yeah, cells that divide rapidly. Now you said it is a pretty confusing situation as it's a xeno-autoantigen. Um, so is, it, is autoreactive inflammation or autoimmunity, is it a common, commonly uh, associated with uh, NU5GC? I can say that many years ago, uh, NU5GC was defined as Hanganische Daishe Moieti, based on the discovery of the of these investigators that's the names of the investigators and at the time 
although they didn't know exactly what was the antigen, uh, they thought maybe it would be only a glycolipid that contains NUFGC. Now we know that it's much more broad. Um, then they discovered this HD antigen in many different types of diseases, the antigen and the antibodies, in autoimmune diseases, in many chronic inflammation diseases, uh, and that later on, it was also shown in more sophisticated tools that these antibodies really play a role in um, cardiovascular diseases, in, in other types of autoimmune diseases, uh, some in diabetes as well, and uh, in cancer, of course. So whenever you have uh, the antibodies, it basically mediates chronic inflammation um, that uh, supports in, in cancer. It could support cancer growth. Uh, yeah, but on, on, other, on the other side, it can also be used as a therapeutics if you use it at a good and high amount levels, high affinity antibodies, then this could be uh, um, turned into a supportive treatment rather than a devastating disease. Could you please comment on what are some of the other theories for the red meat associated disease risk? There are many explanations in terms of red meat and disease. Uh, of the most common one we know that is cholesterol. Uh, that is associated with heart disease, but of course there are many others like TMAO and, and uh, different uh, compounds when you grill the meat. Uh, uh, there are many theories, but what I can say is none of these theories was specific for red meat. But then recently we found uh, that the level of the antibodies that we can find within humans is associated with a level of red meat. And, and that could explain the association between uh, cancer risk and red meat consumption. And that would be specific for red meat or uh, mammalian-derived foods in general. So the level of NUFGC that is consumed could be uh, linked to the level of antibodies. That was key to understand where you have one uh, explanation that would basically summarize many different types of diseases, including cancer. I think it would be interesting if you could tell us a bit about global trends in statistically looking at the correlation between colorectal cancer in particular and red meat consumption. Thank you. That's a, that's a very good question because uh, when we started to investigate that, we actually looked at um, databases for red meat national uh, red meat consumption across the world in over 120 countries including United States, Australia, um, all Europe, Africa, Asia. And then at the same time, we also had a, uh, access to another database that uh, had uh, tracked the colorectal cancer risk. And we found a direct correlation between higher consumption of red meat and higher, a, a higher risk of colorectal cancer. So in countries that consume high levels of red meat, like United States, Australia, South America, then you would have a high risk of colorectal cancer. And it's the opposite in countries that consume low levels, like India or Africa, except for South Africa, where they have a annual barbecues. So we know that actually South Africa 
people consume a lot of red meat, but not in most other parts of Africa. Now, looking specifically now a bit at cancer, what are tumor-associated carbohydrate antigens and what is the benefit of characterizing them? We know that all cells are covered with a thick layer of glycans and these glycans are really sugar chains that, uh, and these sugar chains or glycans are, can be conjugated to proteins and lipids and in fact, the evolution had never been able to invent a cell, whether it's a virus, bacteria, yeast, or a mammalian cell, that would not be covered with sugar. So this is really, really important. But what we know is that in cancer, uh, the sugar coating is different. So the, the sugar coating of cancer cell is different than that of normal human cells, or uh, at least in, in, in any a other organism as well. And it's not simple because you don't have one gene that would determine the sugar coating. Actually, it relies on a complex metabolic pathway of a collection of enzymes, each taking one sugar unit at a time to assemble these long sugar chains. And in cancer, there are specific um, mutations or changes to these metabolic pathways that lead eventually to a differential sugar coating on cancer cells. And that could be used for diagnostics and therapy for cancer. Speaking of therapy, what are some of the common types of immunotherapy and what are their limitations? You can divide at large immunotherapy into active or passive immunotherapy. Active immunotherapy is that you teach the immune system to attack the cancer. While in passive, you just give them the therapy from outside, like antibodies uh, or uh, different cytokines that you can give from the outside. When we look at active immunotherapy, also here you have many different uh, things. And uh, for example, cancer vaccines or a, a CAR T immunotherapy or checkpoint inhibitions where you can actually teach the immune system uh, to uh, react to the disease condition. And, and with sugars, of course, uh, that is a very hot topic that people are uh, trying to now leverage the changes in the sugar coating of cancer versus no normal cells to design novel immunotherapy approaches to treat cancer specifically. Could you maybe talk a bit about your work with carbohydrate-based vaccines? Looking at the NU5GC, uh, we knew that uh, NU5GC accumulates mostly on cancer cells and therefore uh, generating a, an active cancer vaccine that would uh, use or even exploit the already common anti-NU5GC response, that could be uh, leveraging the, the efficacy of the immunotherapy. So to do that, we actually generated nanoghosts that are covered with multiple presentations of NU5GC. And then we also optimize the immunization regime and conditions in a way that once we inject the cancer vaccine, the immune system will be high, robust, and long-lasting. And that is key because if you have low anti-NU5GC response or at least a even high but low affinity, then you would not only not kill cancer, actually you would uh, promote it. So there is a risk. So we, with the novel design of our uh, nanoghost vaccine, 
we could uh, show that uh, with the regime that we have developed, we can generate robust and sustained response over time uh, that basically teaches the immune system to attack the cells that already have the new 5GC. And would this be uh, used in um, addition to traditional therapies or would this be a novel, um, unique treatment that could be applied? It could be on its own. And of course, it can be combined with many types of either passive or active, other active immunotherapies. And uh, it has room for, uh, for both. And of course, um, uh, looking at the diet is key to understand which people would benefit from such a vaccine. Of course, people, because we already showed based on studies from of a, a very large cohort of 20,000 individuals, we showed that people who consume high levels of red meat are those that would have high levels of these antibodies that are, in fact, a, could be associated with a cancer risk. Those people would benefit from a high antibody response, but of high affinity antibodies from the vaccine, because we know that they already have new 5GC in their bodies. But on the other side, people who consume low levels, uh, they wouldn't be uh, at risk for cancer. And for them, actually, perhaps a different types of immunotherapy would be better. Yeah, I'm just thinking of people who are vegan or who don't consume any meat. Uh, this would not be a very effective approach, perhaps, if they, if they developed cancer. Not for new 5GC. And th that's still a question that we are investigating because in the study, uh, we didn't have particular vegans or vegetarians, and uh, of course that's under investigation. But we did show that people who consume low levels of red meat have low levels of antibodies. And we actually even developed a glycemic index that's where we took all the foods and we compared it to steaks. So, and then we defined that if you take one or two steaks per week, 250 grams per steak, so half a kilo, <laughs> half a kilo meat per week, that's on the safe side. But if you eat four or five steaks per week, then you would already have high risk of, of uh, developing high levels of the antibodies that in another study we showed are associated with higher risk of can colorectal cancer. So we know what are the high and lows. And, and we, we also developed a method, even without needing to question, questionnaire, to uh, really ask the people if they consume or not, based on their antibody characteristics, we can say if they are high consumers or low consumers. So we have a, a kind of a diagnostic test to really um, tell if you're a high red meat eater or not. Uh, and uh, that could support fitting the right therapy for the right people. And could this therapy potentially be used as a preventative measure for cancer? Could it inadvertently then support uh, further inflammation? Uh, the, the active cancer vaccine you're asking? Well, in another study, we showed that if you uh, take uh, antibodies uh, that are purified from humans that were uh, developed from the diet versus antibodies that were developed from a vaccine, in this case, a different type of vaccine, these antibodies have differential effects on cells. We don't know exactly what it means, but we definitely know that the gene network that were activated 
in dietary antibodies versus active cancer vaccines are completely different and in fact a mirror image. So there is a very good chance that actually the vaccine would be beneficial rather than a, having high levels of antibodies from diet. We know for sure that they are different. They are not the same. Now going into more, focusing more on cardiovascular illness, which is also a very commonly associated disease with red meat intake. Um, we're going to talk about uh, xenotransplants. So could you define what we mean by those first? So in xenotransplantation, we know that many people that have a diseased heart or a diseased kidney, they have to get an, a donor transplant. And uh, that, of course, we know for many years that uh, there are many different proteins and people that get a full organ have to be immune suppressed. Uh, but even in smaller uh, items like uh, biological heart valves, uh, that can also carry uh, animal-derived tissues. So in the case of uh, aortic valve stenosis, so for example, in heart valve disease, we know that the heart pumps the blood to the whole body uh, and then from the lungs uh, also uh, to the heart and then from the heart to the whole body. And the unidirectional flow is mediated by heart valves. These heart valves tend to deteriorate in uh, some individuals, uh, more commonly over 60 or 65, and they malfunction because there is sedimentation of calcium in those tissues. And those calcium uh, t uh, sedimentation then uh, limit the opening and closing of the valve. And in that case, when that happens, you cannot remove the calcium anymore. The only thing you can do is to remove the valve and put inside a different valve. And then the option, the, the patients have two options, either to take a mechanical valve that doesn't have any animal-derived tissue but then they would have to take anticoagulants for life with the risk that comes with that of bleeding. And the second option is to have a bioprosthetic heart valve that is made of animal tissues. These animal tissues are like cows or pigs or horses. And we knew when we started the study looking at that is that these animals, like chimps, have new 5GC and they also have another immunogenic glycans that is associated commonly with xenotransplantation, it's alpha-gal. So these two immunogenic sugars are found in the tissues. And we found, based on a very a long study that took almost 10 years, we actually um, tracked patients before surgery and up to 15 years after the surgery to see what happens if those individuals get the bioprosthetic heart valves uh, that contains tissues from these animals. And what we found is that indeed, at least uh, even immediately one month after the valve transplantation to remove the diseased calcified valve, these antibodies develop higher levels of anti-NU5GC and anti-alpha-gal antibodies. We also showed that eventually these antibodies mediate the calcification of the valve that then uh, doesn't allow it to uh, function. Uh, the new 5GC from the diet was also found in the original native valve from the patients that actually caused them to need the surgery to begin with. Does that cause the disease? We don't know, but we know that the antibodies 
and the sugars were there when the valve was calcified, and that caused them to require the surgery. We also know that people that receive bioprosthetic heart valve, many of them tend to deteriorate again after 10 years once they are in the body. And when we started this study, we hypothesized that uh, the antibodies that we already have in the blood, anti-NU5GC and anti-GAL, could possibly attack the now mechanical, uh, the bioprosthetic heart valve. And this is exactly what we found, uh, that the antibodies that we have or the patients have attack the bioprosthetic heart valve and they mediate calcification. And that process even starts very early, two years after the, uh, the transplantation, we could see already the calcification. Although it malfunctions over 10 years, it, this process starts very early. Importantly, what we found is that if we generate genetically uh, modified animals like pigs and cows that do not express these immunogenic sugars, when we try to use these tissues in an animal model, we see that even if you have very high levels of the antibodies, they would not mediate calcification. So you need both. You need the xenoautoantibodies and you need the xenoautoantigen. So you need both the, the sugar antigens and the antibodies to mediate calcification. If you remove either the, we don't know about the antibodies, but if you remove the glycans, you know that it would generate probably safer valves that would not tend to, to get calcified in patients. So um, a lot to unpack there in what you just said. Um, one place I want to start with was that you said that um, patients with patients who suffered with, um, who had to have their heart valves removed, you could find a new 5GC even on their native um, heart valves. So could you maybe um, explain how inflammation caused by new 5GC might contribute to calcification of these heart valves? Uh, I can say that uh, we don't know exactly what mediates this inflammation, but we know for sure also in this native and in the in the calcified native valves and in the calcified bioprosthetic heart valve, we know that we found the sugar, we found the antibodies, and we found complement deposition, and we also found TNF-alpha deposition in the native calcified valves. So we know that there is a process of inflammation, which are the cells that mediate that, that is still under investigation. And of course, uh, once we know that, perhaps we can design than a therapeutics um, in vivo to maybe limit that inflammation. Now you said that um, these bioprosthetic heart valves do tend to fail um, within the 10 years of implantation. And so I'm wondering, and I'm guessing many of our listeners might be thinking that um, after this very long period, could you still find these original new 5GC um, um, antigens present on, on these heart valves, which were explanted deep? How do you take it taken out? Um, yeah. So actually, if the, the patient had the first surgery at 65, then 10 years later it malfunctioned, that means that he would be 75. And at 75, to go through another surgery, that must be devastating. And what you ask is something that all the physicians and the cardiologists that actually run the surgery asked me, how do you know that you still have the new 5GC? The tissue may come from the pigs, but it's in the body for 10 years. Maybe that had been removed. 
And actually to address that, we took the explanted valves in patients that had to have that valve removed and uh, in order to replace it again because it malfunctioned. And there we quantified the new 5GC and we found that at least 20% of the original amount of the sugar is still there. Even after 10 years or 12 years within the body, it's still there. And the antibodies are also found within those uh, tissues in the explanted valves. Now, you did mention something that's very interesting, which is um, using animals, which usually donate these valves, um, and suppressing the gene for new 5GC. Um, how could you maybe explain what the logistics would have been of incorporating this at a larger scale um, in, in a clinical practice? So it's very complicated. Uh, basically, uh, many of the valves, uh, or I, I would say the common valve, uh, there are many different manufacturers, but uh, the common practice is to use the pericardium, that's a very thin tissue that lines the heart, in order to generate the tissues of the valve. We have a frame and then the tissues uh, have like, that you generate like flasks, like tissues that would then open and close to allow the unidirectional blood flow. And in order to generate one such valve, you would need around four or five animals to generate one valve. So naturally, that is very complex because you need to generate a very large herd of animals and facilities to uh, allow that. When we did the study, we, we had just a few calves of bovine and just a few uh, small pigs uh, that we could just uh, use that not in order to generate a complete valve, but rather to generate, uh, to just use the tissue uh, a, to, to do the studies, um, but uh, really to have it large scale, we need um, some companies that would uh, help hop in and uh, take, take on the effort to um, manufacture such valves. Did you find similar issues with other xenotransplants? You mentioned kin kidneys as well. Uh, we, we, I personally did not do this investigation, but we did look at uh, anti-NU5GC response in patients that received a, a transplantation or of other organs, uh, but the question was different. Uh, what we asked was, what is uh, the outcome in these patients that are immune suppressed by receiving the anti-Timocyte globulin drugs? Patients that go through transplantation have to have immune suppression. And one of the ways to do that is to use an antibody against T-cells. These antibodies against T-cells are produced in rabbits, most commonly. Rabbits are non-human mammals. They have NU5GC. So th these drugs actually contain NU5GC. So when, when you... Um, uh, when these patients received the drugs, we actually showed that uh, these patients, although they were immune suppressed, had higher levels of anti-NU5GC antibodies. And maybe explaining why in some individuals uh, the transplant does not last longer and, uh, and perhaps a, a limiting red meat consumption could also help in that respect. Have you has um, I'm curious in terms of other um, biologics therapies where like um, where antibodies might be generated in other am mammals, um, 
So what would be the implications for people who might take these medications long term also for autoimmune conditions, for instance? Well, uh, I was a part of a study that looked at uh, antibody therapeutics that are, uh, of course, uh, we looked at new 5GC uh, uh, presentation. And we did find that, uh, uh, actually, it was in Ajit Varki's lab, it was published in Nature Medicine, that uh, some of the common drugs uh, that are used in the clinics do contain new 5GC, and that depends on the production system. So if you use mouse cells like hybridomas, of course you would have new 5GC on those drugs. <clears throat> and as we did with, um, we showed it for anti-tumor globulin, that you have an increased antibody responses in many different contexts. We see that there is an increase in the antibody responses. And uh, in that particular study where we looked at other drugs, common drugs that contain U5GC, we showed that in mice, uh, when you have uh, at the same time anti-U5GC antibodies and the U5GC containing drugs, that had mediated rapid clearance of the drug. And that could explain why some, in some individuals those drugs don't work or maybe they just, you find an escape during therapy. And we don't know that for sure, but perhaps this could be also associated with a diet. Do you think that this um, is very well recognized in a scientific field that the, or the medical field, the presence of new 5GC and the impact that that might play on patients? I know that in academia, it's not very well recognized, but in the industry, um, Yes, it's very well recognized, and I think that even the FDA requires uh, really to look at the glycosylation pattern of antibodies as a part of the regulatory package. Uh, but there are no specific guidelines. I mean, you have to have a profile, but you do, they don't know exactly what to ask. And I hope that with other studies, of course, we, we will be able to define what is good and bad or what is a threshold that from which it would be devastating or not or maybe it doesn't matter for every disease, maybe on, only for, or, 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 or of every drug, maybe there are certain drugs that are susceptible where others are not. So there is a lot of unknowns in this system. I'm curious, you mentioned you developed an index um, for assessing how potentially harmful different foods are. So just to reiterate, is there a safe um, dose of red meat that can be eaten without the risk of um, new 5GC-associated diseases? The index was not really uh, showing the disease risk. The, the glycemic index, as it, the name maybe implies, is just the amount of new 5GC in different foods. We know in many mouse studies that high levels of new 5GC could be associated with diseases in mice. In humans, we showed that if you consume high levels of new 5GC, you would have high levels of antibodies. And in very limited human studies, we showed that high levels of anti-NU5GC antibodies are associated with diseases. So to, this is a triangle that is not complete uh, uh, all over, but there are hints that if you consume high levels you, you, of NU5GC, you would be at disease uh, risk of many different types of diseases. So the, the index really reflects the amount of new 5GC in different foods. And uh, intuitively, one can think about it as a glycemic index, where 
you can say how fast a, a, a food item is metabolized. So in that respect, uh, the glycemic index refers to the amount of new 5GC in different food items. And if we compare it to uh, steak, we thought that this would be most intuitive. We gave the score of one to steaks and then divided everything compared to that. And what we found, for example, is that goat cheese, like Roquefort, has three times the amounts of U5GC in steak, which means that you would need to, uh, to eat one-third the amount of steak to reach the same amount of U5GC. But I can say that or uh, milk, for example, had one-tenth the amount of steak which means that you would need to drink 10 liters of milk per day in order to get to this one amount of steak. So then it kind of puts things in a perspective in terms of the possible risks or possible amounts of new 5GC that you have in the different food items. And then a person can um, judge on it, uh, you know, for himself if that's good or bad. And I'm not saying red meat is bad. Red meat has very good advantages like, you know, iron and, and different vitamins. So it could be good. And But my conclusion from this study was that like everything in life, you should have it in balance. So too much of a good thing also is not good. Uh, uh, and uh, just limit the amount would be, uh, I think, better. So one or two steaks is fine, four or five steaks per week is not fine. If I may ask, I'm curious, has doing this research impacted your personal dietary habits? <laughs> uh, that's funny you're asking because uh, I really uh, limited the amount of red meat many years ago when I started to work on UFAG-GC. And then I, I limited it so much that I really had to take uh, iron infusions because it was too low. So I'm saying from personal perspective that iron and red meat could have some beneficial um, uh, you know, items uh, in the food. So, uh, as I said, uh, balance is good. And uh, if, if you stop eating red meat like vegetarians and vegan, then you have to supplement your diet with something else just to be on the safe side. And I think a very good way to place to leave this uh, discussion is by asking you if you think there is a potential to use new five anti-new 5GC antibodies as biomarkers of red meat associated diseases. Well, that's very complicated. I know that people are trying to do that, but because it's so related to the diet, uh, then um, it could be limited to you know people that perhaps eat uh, some higher levels of red meat. And we don't know yet, but um, and what would be that marker? What would be that biomarker? Um, and it's still under study. But we did come up with a ratio of, you know, the different glycans and linkages uh, of the cell, which we, d we didn't discuss at all. It's, it's a bit more complicated to look at the linkage of the sialic acid to the underlying glycans. So we have a way to see um, uh, who are the people that have high levels of antibodies, but connecting that to the disease is still yet to be investigated. Definitely sounds very exciting either way. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for joining me for this conversation. It was, it was really a pleasure. Thank you very much, Rina. It was a pleasure as well. Now, speaking to our listeners, I hope this conversation has deepened your understanding 
of the interplay between diet and immune response and the transformative potential of research focusing on xenoautoantigens. If you would like to access more information about this conversation and Vered's previous work, follow the link in the description to the show notes for this episode. Equally, if you want to find out more about Glycanage, head on to glycanage.com, where you can access a whole list of our scientific publications, blog posts, testimonials, and of course, this is where you can order your Glycanage test kit. Please don't forget to leave ratings and reviews for this episode and engage with us on social media. Thank you for listening and have a great day.